Hello and welcome to Unravelings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Sherlyn. This week we're going to be talking about the 2008 movie, Wally. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Wally? Mm-hmm. Wally? I don't know how people say it. Anyway, if you're interested in seeing what episodes we have coming up, we post our schedule on our social media. You can find the links to that in our show notes. If there's something you'd particularly like us to cover, you can email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. We also encourage you to take part in the conversation on social media with the hashtag Unramblings, and we try and respond to that whenever we can. We definitely want to include people in these conversations. We have a growing listener base, but if you want to share this with any of your friends and family who might be interested, we'd be excited for that. Any reviews, wherever you listen, are really helpful in helping new listeners find the show as well. Okay, so uh, we're going to get into our main topic now. So uh, we're obviously going to be spoiling the plot of the film Wally. Uh, if we have any other content or spoiler warnings, we'll drop those in right here. Hello from the future! Not too many spoiler warnings, just a couple of notes for the end of The Good Place. We referred back to our conversation from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we also talked a little bit about Horizon Zero Dawn and how it relates to Wally. So again, we were just sort of referring back to that conversation from before. And this week we don't really have content warnings, because it's an adorable children's film. Yay! Back to the past. Welcome back. The film Wally is set in a theoretical future where humans have abandoned Earth after it's become so full of garbage that it's uninhabitable. Humans are now living on luxury space liners, and a bunch of trash-compacting robots are supposed to be cleaning up the mess while the humans are away, supposedly for five years, but the movie is set over 700 years after this plan was put into place. The movie introduces us to a single trash-compacting robot who seems to be working entirely by himself, like none of the other robots, at least in that area, seem to be functioning anymore. And he's adorable and obsessed with the movie Hello, Dolly! from the 1960s, is friends with a little cockroach, and in general just seems to be like a romantic, spirited robot which is weird but cute. Another robot is brought down by a rocket to check for signs of plant life. This robot is called Eve. Wally has a crush on Eve and follows her when she's scooped up to go back to the luxury space liner that the humans are living on. Wally and Eve try to appropriately register the existence of plant life on the ship so that it will trigger a return to Earth, but the autopilot mechanisms of the ship had had a secret directive installed after the CEO of the corporation slash government in charge of the planet decided that the cleanup plan was not actually going to work, and the secret directive was to just keep humans living in space indefinitely where they're also continuing to just pollute everything around them. Like, they're, they're still just compacting all of their garbage and releasing it into space instead of onto the planet. So through the actions of Eve and Wally, the captain, and a couple of other humans whose blissed-out, mindless consumer existences are disrupted by Eve and Wally, they manage to actually get the plant into the place where it will trigger the ship to return home so the humans can recolonize and, like, rehabilitate the Earth. So I think I want to talk about the opening of this film. We've talked a little bit in a couple of earlier episodes about some really impressive long shots. I know I mentioned the film The Player that has, like, a 13-minute opening shot or something like that. There was another similar one. I'm trying to remember what it was now. 
Oh, is the it was actually back in our first episode. It was The Shining, that very long shot of the car driving up, and it's sort of giving you atmosphere and stuff. I feel like Wally does something very similar in a different way. Where I mean, obviously it's an animated film, so the long shot doesn't really play in the same role. But you have, uh, I think you said it was the first twenty-two minutes of the film. There's no dialogue as such. Mm-hmm. But you just have these sort of shots of things happening that tell you so much about this world in such a rich way. Yes, especially the very opening of the movie does so much world building in such an elegant way without so many of the tools that are often used to build a world and to build a history. You don't have anyone telling you anything, like no humans telling you anything. It reminds me of a lot of the world building in Horizon Zero Dawn with like Mm. the found media, because for the first several minutes, you're just following this robot who's completely nonverbal as he roams through the world and triggers lasting multimedia presentations of the world that led to this. Like the film opens with the juxtaposition of a song from Hello Dolly, I think, about how there's a wonderful world out there while it's showing you literal skyscrapers of trash made out of blocks of compacted garbage. And those towers are much higher than the skyscrapers that they're often next to. Mm. It's showing you that the ground is matted with old money branded with a corporate logo. As the trash compacting robot rolls by something with a motion sensor you have these billboards talking at you and a thoroughfare lined with billboards trying to sell you things. Yeah. And it's it's just painting a picture of this of the corpse of a consumer world. Yeah. I mean if you at the point at which you've got I think that the chairman of the by and large corporation is also the president of I guess the United States. I don't think a country is named, so maybe it's of the world, who knows. Mm-hmm. And you've got the by and large logo on the money if you want a symbol of unchecked capitalism then that's a pretty glaring one right which means that we're we're you know a quarter of an hour into a apparently a children's film and we've got a fairly strong message of you know consumerism and capitalism and destroying the environment frankly to the point where your monuments are overshadowed by the garbage that you're creating and that the earth is totally uninhabitable. Like, there are no humans. And at this point in the film, they show you what happened to the humans. They left. That billboard series that I mentioned is advertising luxury space liners that humans can get on to escape the garbage they've made while robots clean it up for them. Yep. Like, that's this is happening in the first five minutes of this children's movie. But before we get too deep into the heavy messaging of the movie, let's circle and center back on the incredible world building that they're doing in this first 20 minutes where there's no human character to, for the audience to focus on. There's no explicit history lesson. It's all absorbed through observation and what they're choosing to show you. When you say there's no dialogue in the first 22 minutes... Are we excluding the voiceover on the multimedia presentation? Yeah, there's no dialogue. There's uh, a dialogue. Okay. There's a monologue. Yeah. Okay. There's a there's a billboard monologue where it's talking about there's plenty of space out in space. I mean, it, that's what it says. Too much garbage in your face. There's plenty of space out in space. Yeah. There's there's a lot of there are a lot of words, 
but they're all trying to sell people 700 years ago stuff that they probably don't need. Yeah. And the movie that Wally watches, which let's just for a second, I want to applaud their uh, showing that, you know, even a robot can have a healthy work-life balance. He brings a lunch box with him for like interesting things he finds along the day to like appreciate and take break, take take a chance to uh, cover his eyes with a bra. That's like the this period of time's version of stopping to smell the roses. I guess <laughs> he does. He covers his eyes with a bra. He he does. That was not why I was making the face. Um, oh. but yeah, and then like he like clocks out for the day and goes you know home to this storage area that he has where he watches a movie and relaxes with his pet cockroach that he feeds habitually you know like a good pet owner like it's it's very cute cockroach is re- eating the one other thing that's still there twinkies yes but i digress but yeah like it's it's showing you so much that you're able to infer what happened to this world like how it got there and it's between what you know of the world in 2008 the world that we're all living in at the point that this movie comes out and honestly the world we're still living in right now we know what happened it's that nothing changed yeah back to the way that they are able to really build out this world without a lot of the things that are traditionally used in film to bring in an audience and get them attached to characters wally is the only character for the first several minutes and you instantly become attached to him because he's clearly so invested in the world around him very curious about things constantly picking things up i think it's very intentional that the animators making this movie give you a lot of familiar objects being investigated by a robot who doesn't understand them as a shortcut to making him so endearing because like he's so curious and earnest but also so innocent of a lot of the context for all of these objects they weren't made for him and he doesn't understand them, but he still, he loves them anyway. It's like, it reminds me of Ariel in The Little Mermaid, her cavern of human mm. treasures from all the sunken ships. And she's just like, this stuff is so cool. I have no idea what any of it's for. Let me just daydream and speculate about what this might be. Like he puts the bra over his eyes because his eyes are about the right size and shape to fit into the cups of the bra. And so he just puts, puts it on his head and it's just like turning his face around like, is that what this is for? Huh, interesting. I'll keep it. Like, sure. He clearly collects lighters, but then you later realize he doesn't know how to use an, a lighter. He just thinks that they're interesting little shiny things. And he um, has the Rubik's Cube that Eve solves. Right, and he's very perplexed by that and like, how did you even do that? Like, um, You broke it. <laughs> Or at least you did something that I didn't know could be done. Has this palpable compassion for life. The only other living things we see, well, the only living things we see on the planet, I mean, you can argue whether or not Wally is alive. There's like some Pixar theory stuff that indicates that he is. But the organic life that we actually see on Earth in the film are a single cockroach, which is Wally's pet, and whom he's devastated when he thinks he's run he when he has run over him and he thinks he's killed the cockroach, but the cockroach shakes He's a cockroach. Yeah, and it is totally fine. Um and he's like clearly relieved. And all of this is all of this is communicated through body language and subtle robotic noises and like sighing and things like that that are still give let you know everything you need to know. Um, same thing when Eve comes down and she's first on the planet and being all business while the rocket's there, like 
scanning things very methodically. And then the moment the rocket takes off, she immediately gets up and, like, flies around in, like, a joyous spiraling way where she's clearly not scanning anything because we saw what that looked like. Yeah. She's just having a good time. And then when something startles her, she gets back to business. And it's very human in a very endearing way. And you just get so many physical cues like that with the two robot protagonists that tell you so much about the type of archetype that they're meant to embody. Not to mention all the slapstick when Wally is trying to stalk slash court Eve, you know, um, playing into a lot of existing tropes to really get the audience to know what's going on and and be along for the ride. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting storytelling aspects of this is, I mean, you mentioned that obviously Wally is effectively nonverbal, like there's a few words here and there and some noises that we can infer things from and that the other robots seem to get the hint from. But as far as communicating a plot to us, to the audience, without actually having to spell spell it out in words, they rely on some interesting sort of tropes and themes that just sort of if you've consumed media within the same cultural context, then you just sort of notice some of those same sociological cues. The sort of romance between Wally and Eve. While it doesn't necessarily play into the best tropes with Wally sort of like falling madly in love and sort of stalking aggressively. And like, there, there's some problematic scenes where Eve is effectively comatose and Wally is desperately trying to hold her hand and stuff. But, um. But it's those little cues of you can write the dialogue in from those other media that you've seen. And they just use that as a shortcut, as a way to get around the lack of dialogue. Definitely. They're um, building on, as you say, like existing media that is widespread enough or tropes that are in enough other things that you have probably seen something with these types of situations in it. And in some cases, they actively show you the media that they want you to be following it along with, like with Hello Dolly, where they show Wally watching certain scenes in Hello Dolly, and that gives you the context for certain things that he wants, like that he wants to fall in love, he wants a romantic relationship, and you know that from his reaction while he's watching scenes in Hello Dolly. And that's after he's found the hubcap and is... Is it a hubcap or a trash can lid or something like that? I think like it's that. a trash can lid. Trash can lid. And he brings it home to his little storage area and, like, watches the dance scene where they have the flat, round hats that they're raising up and down off of their heads and does the little dance and later does that for Eve to, like, show her what dancing is. And so if you, even though, like, I probably w- wouldn't have necessarily known, oh, he wants that thing because it reminds him of the hats in that movie... But it shows you that, so you don't need to have known it already. Yeah. The same thing with the hand-holding, which ends up being a thing that they carry through a lot more of the movie as an important indicator of of the progress of the romantic relationship between Eve and Wally, where, like, Wally is from the beginning trying to hold Eve's hand, and she's from the beginning not interested or not aware of what that means. And then later, when she sees what how important it is to him, she kind of gets it, gets what that means to him. And so later on, when they're holding hands, it's it's evidence of their reciprocated romance. You wouldn't have known why holding hands would be so important to robots unless they kind of carried you through with that supporting film clip. Yeah, complete tangent for our... Why do we assign male gen- uh, male gender to Wally? I think because he... I think it's the voice thing. 
Or the boxiness, maybe. So I don't think it's ever stated in the film. And the voice isn't exactly deep. It's just an interesting no. thought. It is an interesting thought. I don't know. I don't think there's a good reason. There's not really a good reason to ascribe any sort of gender to either of them because they're robots. But I think that they... I think it's like certain visual cues that I can't necessarily put my finger on and, I don't know, behavioral things. We maybe. just culturally have to assume that a protagonist is male. <laughs> no, I don't think that's it. No, no, I'm, I'm joking. But I'm... I mean, with Eve, it makes more sense. She's called Eve mm-hmm. and does have a notably high-pitched voice. Mm-hmm. And is sort of... It has like a tapered shape. Sure. She's like an yeah. inverted egg shape. I guess I didn't look at that shape and go, oh yes, that's woman. But... It's a more feminine shape than it is a masculine shape. I can't explain that to you, but it okay. is. Anyway, back to the other stuff. And I mean, we we touched a bit on some of the uh, non-verbal communication stuff back in our episode on The Mandalorian. This is just the, we mentioned this in a different episode episode. Um, mm-hmm. So sorry about that for people who have just jumped in on this as their first one. But you do see a lot of the same tricks at play with Wally in particular and the child from Mandalorian, where they want you to root for this character and be invested, mm-hmm. and they don't have witty conversation to get you invested or a strong motivation. I mean, I guess there's a motivation for Wally, which is... But anyway, but they sort of do it with this sort of cute, lightly bumbling sort of way to it. Mm-hmm. Lightly bumbling... A lot of vocalizations, clear concern for others, yeah. and big eyes. Yes. Like, I think all of those are like the, this is a cute and adorable thing that you want to support toolkit. And like the little physical cues of curiosity and distress. And like a lot of these basic emotions that are so cute when you see like a small child do them. You know, if you watch a toddler discovering something new for the first time, it's going to be a lot of those same things that you're seeing in both the child or in the animation of Wally. If there is an artist out there listening to the show who wants to do me a mock-up of Eve and Wally as the Mandalorian and the child, I- I'd be excited for it, I have to say. <laughs> or if you want to design us a cool logo, that would be cool too. Where are we going with this? Just that it's a lot of the the same types of strategies that we're seeing employed to make a compelling character with limited verbal communication. I think one of the biggest things with Wally that makes you love him so much, at least it makes me love him so much, (laughs) is that he clearly cares so much about any other creature that he encounters. He's immediately fascinated by Eve, sure, to a, a initially a little bit obsessive and weird extent because... He, like, jumps immediately 100% into, like, being romantically interested, and he does not know her at all. But with the cockroach, he's so devastated when he thinks he's running, when he thinks he's run the cockroach over. And then when he meets the humans, he's nice and, like, sweet to them, and he introduces himself, even though he's been operating on his own for hundreds of years, presumably never really had any interaction with humans, because why would he need to? He's a trash-compacting robot. But somehow he has manners. And is, like, shaking hands and helping people up and politely indicating that he would like to sit next to his friend, please, and all of this stuff that is just deeply adorable. Yeah. he There, there is the scene when the guy is trying to hand him, the, like, the empty cup. And Wally's just like, what? No, what are you... <laughs> Which is really funny because he is a trash-compacting robot, and so, like, his job is actually to receive garbage. And yet... But the guy was being rude about it, damn it. He was being rude about it, and that's not okay. 
people in the service industry should not be taken for granted or treated disrespectfully. And I, 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 res- I understand and support Wally's indignation in that situation. I'm like, don't just shove something at me like I'm an inanimate trash can. I'm an animate trash can, damn it. <laughs> and it's not just Wally who gets this very adorable characterization with limited verbal communication. All of the robots have that. Mo in particular. Mo and Eve also. Yeah. Like, Eve is such a perfect portrait of frustration so often throughout the movie. And, like, there's particularly the scene, and this is one where, you know, getting back to the storytelling elements, they're leaning on you having seen other media when the uh, the security robots take a photo right as she's trying to take her arm that has the gun at the end away from Wally, who is holding it detached from her for some reason. And they take the shot, like, right at the moment where it looks like she's pointing her arm gun, you know, aggressively. So it looks really bad. And they're very much counting on everyone who sees this movie having seen one of those, it's not what it looks like, moments in a movie where, like, it's just someone walks in at the exact wrong moment or takes a photo at the exact wrong time. And she does make that, like, frustrated noise. And it's just like... Now I look like a terrorist. <laughs> or a rogue robot, which is what they're saying that they are. But um, there is that yeah. way she gets of saying Wally, where it's like, yeah. look, you're very sweet, but stop. Yeah. Please. And, I mean, and similarly, Mo, like you were pointing out, when that moment when he decides which parts of his programming he's going to follow, because he's got a choice. He can either follow the line in the direction he's supposed to clean, or he can follow his directive to clean the foreign contaminant he has scanned, and he is visibly... What's the word? Conflicted? Yes. He's visibly conflicted about it for a moment and then makes the decision to jump off of the line and follow the compelling rogue contaminant or foreign contaminant that he wants to clean. And there does seem to be an air of him not being sure whether he's able to do that or not. Right. Like, he's so gleeful that he can. Like he, he sort of like closes his eyes and does it and is like, oh, it worked. And then does like a little dance. Yes. Like a, like a hee 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 moment. Like, yay! Which is, I think, one of the reasons that Mois is so adorable. Yeah. So he's realized the rules are arbitrary, and that is a fascinating moment for, I think, any person, like, growing up. When you realize that a lot of the rules that you've taken for granted and viewed as immutable are actually arbitrary things that other people have just agreed to follow. Um, they're not actually written in stone. Yeah. But I think we're getting off topic again. Back to the ways that they kind of build this world. I mean, we've talked a little bit about, like, how they how they show you the earth and, like, the state of the earth and explain very organically and fluidly how the earth got to the point that it is. And, you know, rampant, unchecked consumerism and treatment of everything as disposable, basically. And then once you get to the axiom, there's another set of world building where they're, they're showing you the world that humans live, that humans and robots exist in, on this giant luxury space liner and the way that that entire society is managed and plays out. And you see that there are literal lines everywhere that dictate where different people or robots or whatever go, like, exactly, like, 
physical lines on the ground, um, showing the paths of different classes of being, robot and, and human. And the billboards and the voiceovers talking about the, essentially, like, the daily life of the humans, you know, where they have this fake sky that shows both a sun or a moon or whatever, and ads for different holographic colors for your jumpsuit that everyone wears, and all of the food in cups. There are routines upon routines, and everything is very... Structured. Yeah, everything's very structured, and people are referred... Even though, like, these are literally all of the people that are there, but they're referred to as consumers? Or shoppers. They're referred to as shoppers, which is weird, because who's buying anything? Like, this is what people... Where people live. No one works. Everyone's sitting on hover chairs constantly. It is the question that I come away from the film with, like, as far as a plot hole goes, is that there's all these people who are being sold things, but there's no economy there, Um, which is exactly what I want from my Disney movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, and there's a point at which you see that you're leaving economy, or you're you're entering economy or something. So there's some implication that there is still some sort of stratified class system on the Axiom, but it's never really explored. There's a captain, and in the captain's chamber you see a series of portraits of the previous captains with years, and that gives you a sense of how long humans have been in space, and also how progressively obese-looking the people on, you know, the captains look. They are rounder and rounder people as you go along the timeline. Yeah. And so you're mm. you're getting a sense of the history of this particular weird encapsulated society and also just the extremely repetitive and mind-numbing existence that the humans and the robots are repeating over and over on yeah. the ship. It's it's interesting as far as mind-numbing side of things kind of goes. As I say, we're just referencing past episodes at this point. But uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about The Good Place, and they'd show that if everything is perfect, then you kind of just... Well, they argue that anyway. They said there was the philosophical disagreement about that, but... They suggest that, like, if everything was perfect and time was infinite, then you would just kind of go insane with boredom, effectively. Which they seem to sort of imply a little bit here. There's an education on the ship, to an extent. We're shown the school class for the children. But then the adults, the first thing that we're shown is someone talking to someone on a video chat screen and suggesting doing something like, yeah, no, we did that yesterday. Like, I'm bored of that, doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of like becoming yeah. disillusioned with that and then equally the captain is like the captain is clearly very smart when he gets given a reason to learn about things he learns a lot quickly he knows how to rewire the ship he he knows what he's doing he's sort of shown as a buffoon at first because he's not got any purpose and like he realizes that he slept through his morning announcement and is like oh, we gotta go back and do that because it's the one thing I get to, I'm allowed to do around here because everything else is automated for him. Mm-hmm. So you're presented this view of not just consumerism, but technology has reached a point where humans don't need to do anything anymore and they kind of go insane. Not insane, but they lose any sort of drive. Yeah, and it's interesting that you point out the point where he turns back the day for everybody on the ship because he wants to do the morning announcements. Because it does show that he fundamentally understands that all of those rules are arbitrary. Whether it is 
time for breakfast or time for lunch. Who who knows? It's There's no actual orbit or day or night cycle that that's built around. They've just decided it will be this period of time. And he acknowledges that and is completely willing to just inconvenience everybody who is about to have lunch and to do the morning announcements and yeah. confuse everyone. Um, but it's interesting that you say that people go crazy. I mean, I know you sort of walked back a little bit, but that they become sort of bored and complacent. There's an experiment that was done a while ago, and I think it's referred to as like rat world or something. There was some interesting phenomena observed when you try to essentially create like a rat heaven where like rats have whatever they need and don't have to struggle for anything. And obviously humans aren't rats, but there were, but there were some interesting splits in the population not everyone reacts to heaven, quote-unquote, the same way, or at least unlimited resources available at any time. There is a subset, there was a subsection of the population of the rats that did kind of go crazy and, like, were self-destructive and aggressive to other rats, and there were others that sort of that were, I think, called, like, the beautiful ones oh, yeah. that, like, hold up in an area, like, just grooming themselves constantly while other rats brought them, like, food and stuff. There are some <sighs> weird behavioral things that have been observed in experiments where a mammal didn't have to do anything to ensure its survival and, like, had no stressors in its life. Their brains seem to create some stress because it's part of the chemical environment that brains are designed to operate into and is in response to needs and thus stressors to meet those needs. That was one of the things, going back to the good place, where when you were saying that the philosophers disagreed on whether or not humans would kind of become brain mush people when all their needs are met and they're in perfect heaven, like, if you're counting on brain chemistry being the same, I could definitely see an argument for a complete lack of any need to strive for anything making a person go crazy. But in, like, a metaphysical reality where brain chemistry meets stuff is not a factor? Who knows? Obviously, with the axiom, though, we are dealing with, you know, squishy, fatty brain electrics and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Squishy, fatty brain electrics. Jolene Green, 2020. Yes. And so, yeah, like, it's it's interesting that they're showing these people as just sort of slowly turning into blobs. Um, yeah. But again, I think that's part of the reductionist approach that you kind of need to do in an animated movie like this. Yeah, I think you're talking about the captain understanding the rules and then being arbitrary mm-hmm. is quite a strong theme throughout the film that we've sort of touched on a little bit, but I think is a little bit easier to perhaps miss. Like um, well, Moe's an element of it, but Wally. I have to assume that Wally has, to some extent, gone beyond what his program was in, programming was intended to do. It looks as though all the other trash compactors on Earth have worked themselves to death in a very sort of like I can imagine capitalist managers and employees in that situation, mm-hmm. and they just keep working, keep working. Wally, as you say, has this very good like work-life balance. Is like, yeah, I'm done for the day. I'm gonna go watch my movie. I'm gonna play with my Rubik's cube. It's it's good. Yeah. Um, feed my roach. Yep. Yeah. Gotta feed my roach. Yeah. Boss is like, can you work overtime? Mm, no. <laughs> um. Yeah, and the the analogy but, of Wally as a worker is so 
clearly intentional. I think that when he like wakes up in the morning, it's that person getting up for work who really doesn't want to get up for work. Like yeah. there's so many intentional parallels in that scene that are so cute. Um, but anyway, just to say, I think that's very intentional. Yeah. But he does sort of operate a little bit outside of that system. And he drags Eve outside of that system a little bit as well. She's clearly got some of her own stuff going on to begin with as she's sort of flying around all over the place. But she's sort of concerned, you know, well, there's my directive. And he's like, well, other things. Or in some cases, this is the better way to do your directive. But um, but when he, he gets to the axiom, he sort of just plays chaos with people's programming. Mm-hmm. Um first with Mo is fairly mm-hmm. obvious but then I would argue that he also breaks the humans programming oh definitely um, yeah. they have this I mean if you think of programming more as in like the programming of what's on TV mm-hmm. like he breaks them away from that to the point where they literally yes like they they go from sort of just trundling around to seeing outside now I mean there's some um Perhaps heavy-handed messaging there about, like, social media not connecting with other people in a real way that we can argue about for some time. Uh, I personally live in another country to a solid chunk of the people I know. I use social media to stay in touch with people around the globe and this sort of thing. So I I always balk a little bit when I see people being like, ah, social media is ruining society and everything. Social media has many, many other problems, but I don't think that it's necessarily right to blame it for a war between you and the world all the time. I agree, but I, I think that certain choices they made with the social media in Wally as like a communication issue, I definitely understand and will would defend because what they show is two guys talking to each other on social media, but they're side by side. They are literally side by side. And so they could have a face-to-face conversation. They don't need to make plans mediated by this screen, but because their entire existence has been curated around this screen, it doesn't even occur to them to do that. And it reminds me of when I was, I think, like 12 or 13 years old or something like that, when in the days of AOL Instant Messenger, because I'm older than you. Um, I used AOL Instant Messenger, thank you very much. Okay, but how old were you? 10, but that's not the point. Yes. So when I was in middle school and using AOL Instant Messenger, at one point I was instant messaging my friend Becky, and I may or may not have also been on the phone with her, but she lived across the street. And my mom realized that this is what was going on, and she was like, no, turn off the computer and just go across the street. Actually go and hang out with your friend and would not let me continue to use the computer. And I think my mom was right to do that because when you can have a face-to-face interaction and there's no reason not to, using those kinds of things, all it, it especially constantly in the way that's shown in Wally, is going to inhibit your ability to have face-to-face interactions and healthy social communication and understanding of finer points of facial expressions and vocal tone and things like that. That's why there's part of why there's so many issues with misunderstandings in communication that's mediated in those ways is because you are losing some of the data that you would get and that most of our brains are designed to detect when you never practice those interactions. Sure. With the way that it's set up in Wally, I agree with you. I think that it is an extreme portrayal of it. Mm-hmm. That I don't think is necessarily fair. But what I do think is a, is a more interesting thing, and I mean, we also need to note that this was a film released in 2008, and social media has gone a long way in 12 years, is the capitalist side of the social media side of things. 
in that it's the screen that they get the adverts pop up on to sell them things. Again, economy doesn't seem to really work on this ship, so we won't question exactly how that works. But it being a thing that you're plugged into and it's constantly selling you ads, or selling you to ads, I think is a more pertinent cultural thing to talk about. Well, at that point, though, at least in the civilization shown on the Axiom, there's no need to sell your information to the companies that want to market to you because everything is by and large. The Axiom is owned by by and large, all of the robots and all of the things that are all yeah, the food I, and cut. Like, say, it I, becomes so all-encompassing that it is effectively socialism. Like it, it, like it's capitalism that's circled back around to being socialism because everything is owned by every, everything's being executed by robots. So humans don't actually own the means of production. The means of production owns itself, but. It theoretically is part of by and large, but that's a company from 700 years ago that no longer seems to have a CEO. It's all autopilots. At this point, it's just robots, robots all the way down. Yeah. As I say, I don't understand how the economy works in this. Based on the way that it is advertised, etc. I mean, it could just be that it's the shell of a capitalist society still working on, but how people's credits work or whether they just ignored the credit system after the first five years and... They were supposed to be returning home, and they were just like, yeah, you can just have everything for free for 700 years. Also, how they are still able to create food 700 years on, I have some concerning questions to ask about that. Especially when they're jettisoning mountains of trash constantly, so they're having to get more mass from somewhere. Yeah. So, so there are some deeper questions I have there. If someone is listening to this and going, ah, well, it was haha. If you want to tell us about conservation of mass or how the economy works on the Axiom, we'd love to hear it. So social media or unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. I think the answer to those questions is that we're looking, we're reading too much into it and uh, it's meant to be a more super, like, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a Pixar film. You never know. That's true. You do never know. They they do get into the weeds sometimes, but I think that really they're sacrificing some of that hard science fiction grounding for the message that they want to convey and the cute storylines. Fine. <laughs> Just saying. We can enjoy it for what it is without picking it apart. Except That's not we... what this podcast <laughs> is about. We can. We probably won't, but we can try. Don't encourage people not to do that. They'll stop listening. Okay. Ah, uh, they already stopped listening. It's okay. To be honest, like there is one thing that those questions come down to, which is how short-sighted the original ideas were and how short-sighted the capitalism in this movie has been and consumerism. How short-sighted which ideas were? Well, when they are sending the Axiom off into space and they were planning for five years, I mean... I, uh, I say flippantly, maybe they decided that after five years everything could be free. They presumably had only planned those five years, and then there was something in place that meant that it could keep going for 700 years, but with no money or what, how that works, it's hard to say. But I mean, tied to that, there's the short-sightedness of destroying the Earth in the first place. Right. And not even just the Earth, like, that short-sightedness continues on. It, after the, by and large, corporation CEO person has... Oh, wait, wait. Shelby Forthright. Yes. After Shelby Forthright has decided, okay, the cleanup project's not actually going to work, we're just... It's just easier to stay in space. Like, that's literally the justification. It's just easier to stay in space. So just stay in space instead. Nothing seems to have been modified or planned for the future 
to prevent the same problem from coming up with the living on space plan, like to ensure that that actually ends up being a sustainable long-term strategy. And as we've mentioned already several times, like they're not living in any sort of sustainable way on the Axiom. We see Eve and Wally and Mo go down the trash chute to the giant compactor in the belly of the ship, and it's full of much, much, much larger Walla robots. They're like Wally but bigger, and on the Axiom instead of Earth. And it's literally just the exact same plan. We're just going to compact all of our garbage and jettison it somewhere that is not right by us, which in this case means out into the vacuum of space, as the Axiom continues to just move forward. It's just like the farting and walking away forever and hoping you never run into the wake of another space liner whose debris is going to tear the hell out of your ship i mean space is really big so it it is really big but when you consider that all of these space liners are coming from earth they're presumably starting in a similar airspace did they all go in different directions and have just been going in different directions for 700 years i mean maybe. like Maybe. Um, But point being, yeah, there's a lot of room in space, but also you're going to run out of materials. There are particular things you need for different things on that ship. And if you're just compacting and throwing away everything, you're creating a much heavier burden. You're you're consuming so much more in the universe when you're doing that. Yeah. Um, It's just repeating the exact same problems that led to having to evacuate Earth. There is also the question of um, how they got the ships into space with the whole Kessler Syndrome thing going on, where they've got just an entire wall of old satellites surrounding the entire Earth. Yeah, I mean, well, and you know what? Some of that might be crap that was jettisoned from the space liners that's gotten caught in Earth's orbit. I mean, that might be part... That may be the biggest barrier to trying to get back to Earth is oh shit, we accidentally left hundreds of years of space, of cruise liner trash directly in our atmosphere where we need to cross. Maybe like 400 years in, the Wally units had largely got everything tidy and they were like, oh, we're just about done. I guess the humans can come back now. And then just like a few meteorites of just massive space garbage. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) And and 98% of the Wally units went, nah, I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, who could blame them? Back to what you're saying about Wally having diverged from his programming. I, I definitely think you're right about that for a lot of reasons. But one of the early evidences of that we get is that he keeps stuff. Like, yeah. He's a trash compacting robot. He's just supposed to indiscriminately scoop things up. And we know when he's briefly back to factory settings after Eve swaps out his motherboard. Yeah. He doesn't have that sentimental attachment to his stuff that he previously had. And just compacts things indiscriminately, which is presumably what all of those units are supposed to do. Yeah. I wonder if you can make an argument that Wally has a virus. I mean, you could, I think you definitely could. Go ahead, make that case. Well, he comes across... I mentioned he cut, like he breaks the program and some things, but like every robot he interacts with, it seems, he interacts with Mo, and then Mo is able to break its programming. Mm-hmm. Um, their programming? I don't know what Mo would be. But then... Just, like, as he's incidentally going through the ship, there's the weird robot that's, like, typing that mm-hmm. drives me crazy because robots don't need to type. They're robots. They don't need a keyboard. But, but I, I do think I have an answer for that. Like, I think that that's an installation from b- before humans were just floating around on chairs all the time and there was a human who was supposed to operate that keyboard. Yeah, okay. That's the only reason to have a keyboard there. And then as you automate away all of the functions of the ship, you eventually have a robot that 
uses the keyboard instead. But if you're going to build a robot that can type, why not just build a robot that you can plug into? Never mind, it's a whole thing. But Wally waves at the robot, and the robot sort of learns to wave in the moment. You sort of see it work that out, mm-hmm. and then when he goes back past it again later, like it, it's just continually waving at him as he goes past. And the same thing with the Wallers in the trash compactor. Mm-hmm. Like when he leaves, they're waving at him, and it seems as though robots go from going in their straight line of everything they're supposed to do every day to having a personality because Wally came past. That's interesting. And then Wally becomes... Does he get back to himself away from the like the factory defaults when... It's when Eve holds his hand. Yeah. But also, I've thought about the moment where Wally kind of boots up and he doesn't remember Eve and he seems just to be following the programming, compacting his stuff when Eve tries to show him things that he loved. And then he becomes himself again. And I've turned that over in my head to try and figure out how would that work because he is a robot. And like, what I come to is that he initially boots up in safe mode because of a, you know, shutting down due to an error type of situation. And then after that initial diagnostic or whatever, running through the normal process of compacting, then loads the last version, saved version of himself once it's determined that everything's working. But I might be reading too much into it. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure I buy that scene. That's a better explanation than anything I could come up with in my head. But like, if we're given something that looks very much like the key that the motherboard is the heart of Mm Wally, so I don't know where that file information will be saved, but... Unless it's part of the Pixar theory argument of him having become sentient. You want to talk about that for a bit? So in the Pix- uh, according to the Pixar theory, all of the Pixar movies happen in the same universe. Which is a fan theory, right? Pixar's not confirmed this. I'm not sure. But there is a lot of evidence for it. And since the, since the spread of the Pixar theory, Pixar has included things in films that seem to support it. But we can look it up later. But according to some aspects of the Pixar theory, non-human or... um, We'll just include it in the show notes. Yeah. According to some aspects of the Pixar theory, inanimate objects become sentient and alive by absorbing some sort of energy from humans or from stuff associated with humans. And it seems to maybe be tied to memory. So sort of like in Toy Story. Yes, exactly. So which is why toys come to life because they're played with by kids and the monsters harvest energy from children's emotions and their memories and then the cars seem to become alive and take on the personalities of their like primary owner that sort of a thing so it could be an extension of that where it's a more metaphysical thing that's him and it just takes a moment for him to kind of get back to himself yeah. And the contact jogs his memory, but it's not a physical memory as in like a disc that he has as a robot. Yeah. It's a more ethereal... It's a soul. Yes, it's a soul. Yes, exactly. Um, so either safe mode or soul. One of those things. There we go. Yeah. Tell us what you think in comments and emails because we would really love to know what other people think about this. So one of the other things I wanted to talk about a little bit was the role of a villain in this film. We watched a video from um, Pop Culture Detectives on YouTube that argues that Wally is an example of sociological storytelling and that the movie doesn't have a villain per se, but that the 
villain role is sort of portrayed by Axiom and by and large. And I sort of took a little bit of issue with that and I've sort of been thinking about it as to whether there is a villain in the film. And I guess that there isn't one single villain as such. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on how I read the video, because it sounded like the video was saying that the issue is a social structure and not an individual. I think that's what that video is making a case of, that the bad guy, the instigator of problems in this movie, is not, you know, an archetypal villain who's got a plan to do something nefarious. It's the autopilot following a directive put in a really long time ago. It's institutional policies that were made and never changed, and patterns of behavior that have been inculcated and never changed over hundreds of years. You could often argue that... So let me work through this. There's various figures that seem villain-esque, like the autopilot, who are effectively high-level henchmen. I would argue, for a more villainous figure in the form of Shelby Forthright, whose self-interest for either corporate greed or his own existence meant that he's got to a point where he's trying to fix the Earth so that he can keep the Earth lifestyle he has, I assume, and has decided that it would be easier, as you say, for people to just stay in space. Screw it. Selfish decision, potentially villainous character, representing a societal structure as villains in movies often do. I don't know about that because he himself isn't doing anything. It's he as a part of a larger culture and system that does not place any sort of importance on taking care of things or planning ahead, set things in motion that later are a problem. And it's, in some ways, it reminds me of our conversation in Horizon Zero Dawn about, um... Ted Farrell. Yeah, about Ted Farrow, who is way more of a villain, I think, because he actively does a lot of stuff to make things harder for people. But in this case, Shelby Forthright isn't, he is also not trusting future humanity or humanity, present humanity to solve a problem and instead is forestalling any sort of attempt to clean up a mess, literally, and is running away and has put all of the programs in place on running away. I guess he's kind of like the sort of character of the knight who, like, makes the big show that he's going to slay the dragon and then runs away and hides somewhere instead or pretends that he's done it and hasn't. The Gilderoy Lockhart of Mm. this universe, where he's like, I'm going to do the thing. Oh, the thing is hard. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's really what it comes down to. The thing is hard. It's so much easier to just not do it. Okay. And that's the real problem is laziness and a lack of conviction or a lack of persistence, not any specific individual. Shelby Forthright himself does not have the power to keep humans in space polluting for 700 plus years way after his death. He's not doing that. There are a lot of other humans on that ship, any one of whom, prior to everything getting automated, could have decided to set humanity's course in a different direction, literally and figuratively. But no one does. Everyone follows the programming of the mindless consumer culture that says, consume, 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 dispose, 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 never look back. Yeah, okay. I like the, okay. I'll take that. So I think there are some good points made in that. 
I thought there were some good points made in that video anyway. Um, so we will link that video in the show notes. It makes some interesting comparisons between Wally and Idiocracy that I think are worth viewing today and bearing in mind. So Agreed. I really like it. That's why I showed it to you. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I think that's all of the topics that we wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that some of the conversations we've had lead me to the big question of who is this movie for? Because we're getting into we're getting into a lot of big, heavy, huge societal concepts here about consumerism and sustainability and personal responsibility and collective responsibility. And this is a kids' movie. So I think there's an easy trap to fall into here because trap. What trap? It's trap. No, I think that there's an easy trap to fall into here because I don't think that any good kids TV or film is aimed only at the child, which I guess just means that I only think that good, the ones that aim at both are good, but never mind. You get a lot of kids programming where there's jokes supplied that are aimed at the parents, references that are not, that are going to completely go over the kid's head, hopefully. Um, Shrek. Shrek's a good example. Some Scooby-Doo stuff. Uh, Fairly Odd Parents. Uh, I never watched Family Your Parents. Um, the one with the fingerprints joke. Oh, Animaniacs. Animaniacs. How'd they get that past the censors? <laughs> but I think that Wally doesn't just have jokes for adults in it. I think that it has a strong message for kids and a strong message for adults. And I think that those might be two separate messages. Okay. So I think I see pretty clearly what the strong message is for adults, which is fairly easy because I was an adult when I saw this movie. It was 2008, so I was like 22 or 23 years old. It's that consumerism, mindless consumerism is bad, disposable perspectives on the world and pollution, polluting is bad. We need to take a more responsible stewardship-oriented perspective on the world and in our behaviors 10 years, 12 years later. Seems like we're really still needing to learn that, and we yeah. really are running out of time to learn that. But what would you say is the message that this film has for children? Well, I think I would add a final point onto the message for adults, which is that you have to try and you have to try and make a difference. You get the scene with the captain where he sees the message that's effectively like, Earth is gone. Mm -hmm. Like, you guys should stay in space. Mm -hmm. And he has the moment where you see the conflict in him of, well, I could just stay in space and that would be easy. But if there's a chance that I could learn about dancing on Earth, then I should try. And I think a good um, part of that scene, too, is um, when he, after he sees that message, he looks like kind of horrified for a moment. But then he asks an important follow-up question, which is, when was this message recorded? And he finds out that it was very shortly after humans had left the planet, a little outside their five years timeline. Maybe it had been 10 years. Who knows? But he's like, that was almost, seven, that was over 700 years ago. It's like a lot has changed since then, or his exact words. Yeah. And it's that he's not taking the easy answer for him in his short-term existence of, well, I can just go back to things as normal where I have a very predictable and easy existence where everything is literally provided to me and I don't have to walk ever. But he actually asks the question that he knows might lead to a much more difficult series of answers, which is, is this information still relevant? Yeah. 
Um, and when he finds out it's not, is like, okay, well, we it's been hundreds of years since that conclusion. We should go and see it for ourselves. Clearly, this plant exists now. Something has changed. We should go and see for ourselves yeah. if space is better. Yeah. And I think that there are certain keys to separate the messages as well. Because I think I think you'll find that most of the adult messaging comes alongside the human characters. And I think the references tend to be more coached in that as well. You have the captain and you have the autopilot that is definitely Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. They, they didn't even try. Inspired. Uh. He's not actually sentient, though. He's just following his directive. And you can tell because then when the captain gives him a direct command, he has to follow it. That's what ends up over... That's what ends up countermanding Otto is when the captain says, that's an order. And then the autopilot listens to the captain. He has to turn it off. When he asks specifically to know the secret directive, because the autopilot wasn't supposed to tell anyone the secret directive, but when the captain told him it was an order to tell him the secret directive, he had to comply. Mm. Equally with the two human characters that get John and Mary. Yes. Who we have with Eve. There's the jokes about things like, oh, get ready to have some kids. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to the message for kids, I think that ties more into what goes on with the robots. And it's about the some of the aspects of responsibility and the directive stuff that are in there, but also the I'm trying to find a way of saying this that doesn't sound too idealistic. Sort of a follow your own follow your heart sort of message. Does that make any sense? I think so. Like a more of a message of individualism, thinking for yourself, appreciating things. I think there's particularly with Wally, I think one of the strongest messages of that character is to appreciate the beauty of things and not to view things as disposable or as trash. Yeah. I to mean, take care of, th- and to take care of things and be compassionate. I would, uh, like, I feel that you can almost watch it as two different movies if you, depending on whether you know about capitalism and consumerism <laughs> as issues. Um, because an adult watches it and goes, corporations have driven consumerism to a height and have destroyed the earth and it's driven to this weird situation in space. And while those hover chairs do look kind of comfy, but um, <laughs> whereas the kids that are watching it are going, oh, hey, it's a robot and a cool, cute cockroach. And then there's another robot. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that the kid, maybe I'm not giving kids enough credit, but I don't think that they're watching it and picking up on all the signs of the larger infrastructure that caused the problems. I do think that kids almost certainly pick up on the messaging of pollution is bad and you shouldn't right. just throw massive amounts of crap away and that you should take better care of the environment. I, I think that message is hugely written across the entire film and would be impossible to miss unless you were pre-verbal, probably. But it's written in two very different ways. That's true. How do you feel about my answer there? I agree with you that, like all Pixar movies, it is intended to be a compelling story for any age. And I can see your point about a lot of the messages being aimed differently for older or younger audiences in terms of especially the message of the impending horrors of capitalism for adults and mindless consumerism and a lack of forethought and awareness of the impact that we have on our environment. I also think that a lot of the messaging for for adults is around how we're programmed by our environment to consume things. They do that in this movie really well by taking it to certain extremes, like with the class of children where it's like A is for Axiom, our home or whatever, and B is for by and large, your very best friend by and large being the corporation government, that's just creepy and horrible. But it's also 
very on the nose in terms of the way that brands are trying to present themselves to us, even like now. Is it more or less creepy than the Pledge of Allegiance? Mm-hmm. I think it's more creepy than the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Those are infants. They're learning their letters yeah. with corporate brainwashing, uh, marketing brainwashing. So yeah. definitely that. That's it. I was thinking for the older kids. but Yeah, but between that and like the literal lines that everyone follows and the way that instant consumption of things advertised to the humans is just like part of daily existence. It's taking that programming of our environment to an extreme that really highlights how undermining of independent thought it is. Yeah. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, as far as the message geared toward children, that's more around being an individual and not falling into the trap of thinking that you have to follow these pre-programmed modes that they're showing. Yeah. I would also argue that just as important in terms of the messaging for children is that you should be compassionate to others and care for the environment and world around you. That's, that's fair. Especially if you're going along with what you were saying about that being in a big part of the robot characters that are really cute and adorable and tap into a lot of the things that make characters lovable to children and to people in general. So I think that that answers our big question. I think the bigger question is, where are those babies coming from? With the way that it's presented, like, they don't stop looking at their screens at any point. Like, there's no interaction one-to-one. That's the shock true. between John and Mary when they touch hands mm-hmm. is like, oh, a human. That is true. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of unmediated social interaction. Like, when would you, if you're always staring at a screen, video chatting with a person you already know... How are you meeting new people? I mean, even if you meet them through there, like, there doesn't seem to be any, like... I mean, I, okay, they don't show us the dating apps and things, but... Uh. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that those would exist because people go through puberty and most people yeah. then start to develop some interest in, you know, sexual relationships and romantic relationships, so presumably there would be a social need for that. You don't see, like, an old married couple going around on their chairs next to each other, though. Everyone is an independent individualist. Yeah, you do see some older people. There's, like, a gray-haired but lady and stuff. But, but you, Yeah, but you don't see couples. That's interesting. The children are always in big masses of baby, like, a, a class of babies or whatever. So it does seem to be a society in which there's been some sort of breakdown of the family unit in that you don't see families at all. So that's a, that's a really excellent point. That it does seem like they're just babies and they're just raised as individuals and they, they go around on their hover chairs through life. And which is the other big question is, wh- what age do you get your first hover chair? And are you, are you jettisoned into space with it? Do you buy a new one that's bigger? Do they upgrade it? Does, does the hover chair grow? It's a whole... I have very many questions about how this film's world work, but I, I'm i going to go away and write some emails and I'm going to come back with a whole list of information on... How the economy, death, sex, and hover chairs work in this world. And whether or not there are families. And whether or not there are families. Okay. Or we could just make claims that there are no fathers in this world. And just <laughs> wait for the hate mail to roll in. <laughs> it wasn't hate mail. It was a thoughtful response with supporting evidence. It was. It. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so shall we move on to fun facts? Yeah, I think so. So I only have a couple of fun facts. All right. So this one I think is slightly more widely known, but the voice of the ship's computer is Sigourney Weaver, who's famous for playing Ripley in the Alien films. The ship's computer that explains different Earth things to the captain? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, cool. So, I mean, like, that's, I think, the first Alien film was late 70s? But, like, so it's sort of right back to uh, the early stuff of that. Well, she also plays the ship's computer in Galaxy Quest. Uh, she does seem to now spend most of her career just, like, popping up in weird, like, sci-fi references. Like, she had a cameo in Paul, which was the Nick Frost, Simon Pegg alien movie that they did. Mm. And by... The voice of the ship's computer in Galaxy Quest, what I actually mean is the woman whose entire job from that TV show is to just repeat what the computer voice says. It's a whole thing through the movie. I've, I've not actually seen Galaxy Quest. So. It's a very weird movie and, and worth watching. Okay. The other one that I had is that the voice of Wally is a man named Ben Burt, who um, is credited with hundreds of sound department credits. He did a lot of sound stuff for Star Wars and actually appears in Return of the Jedi in the shield base on Endor. There's an officer in a black uniform that I think yells freeze or something. And uh, that's that's the guy who voices Wally. So, yeah. Awesome. Weird, certainly. Yes. So we talked a, a fair amount at the beginning about the visual storytelling in the beginning and how like there's no dialogue for a long time mm -hmm. comparatively for the runtime. So the Pixar team, including Andrew Stanton, who kind of helmed this movie, watched every single Charles Chaplin and Buster Keaton movie, short films and features every day during lunch for about 18 months in order to like really... I guess, bone up on visual storytelling effectively. Wow. Which might explain all the slapstick you commented on, because in that early part where Wally is trying to impress Eve, he keeps bumbling in very slapsticky ways. And... There, there is some Buster Keaton elements to that, I'll grant that. Yeah, so that might be where some of that influence comes from. We've talked about appropriate names in Fun Facts before, like with Good Place. The name of the ship, the Axiom is particularly appropriate because an axiom is something that you define and then just sort of take for granted and never question and uh. build your other arguments on top of, which, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that ties right in with a lot of the discussions we had. Fair enough. Speaking of Ben Burt, when Andrew Stanton met with Burt to pitch the idea of him working on this film, he told him, I need you to be 80% of my cast. Um, because most of the robots are both voiced by him through mechanical sounds. Yeah. Like something like 2,500 different sounds, which was twice the average of a Star Wars movie and the most he'd ever recorded for any film. Oof. So uh, Andrew Sand was not kidding about needing him to be 80% of the cast, I guess. I did say that he did also voice Mo. so. Oh, Mo. <laughs> so cute. So speaking of Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey, Wally's pet cockroach was nicknamed Hal by the Pixar artists, huh. was nicknamed Hal by the Pixar artists, in reference to the silent film producer Hal Roach, ha. as well as 2001 as Space Odyssey. Can I slip in my useless uh, 2001 Space Odyssey fun fact? Of course. We're, we're not going to do an episode on that, I'm sorry. I haven't seen it, so... Neither have I. I've seen the first 20 minutes of it and I fell asleep. That will get you some pain mail, I'm sure. It was a very long time ago. I was already very tired. It was very late at night. It's not a good film to start watching at midnight. If you take the name Hal and increase each letter by one in the alphabet, it says IBM. Huh. Yeah. Is that intentional? I don't know. Hmm. Probably not. There are a lot of different references to Apple computers in the movie. There's obviously the boot-up noise that Wally makes when he's recharged, yes. which is great. Wally watches Hello Dolly on an iPod. Oh, uh, yeah. They used 
Apple's text-to-speech system for the autopilot's voice and the difference between like visually the Wally and the Walla machines and the machines like Eve is intentionally a reference to the change in the look of Apple products over time from their original old computers uh... to now. Uh, which is particularly appropriate because Eve was actually co-designed by Apple's senior vice president of industrial design, Jonathan Ive, who also designed Apple devices. Huh. I'm sure you've seen the meme that shows Wally and Eve as the Mac and PC, but really they're just both Macs. They're just a Mac from like 1980 and a Mac from now. The difference being that if something breaks on Wally, you can switch it out for a replacement part. Or exactly. if something breaks on Eve, good luck to you, because it's a smooth cylinder. Yeah, you have to have the proprietary screwdriver or whatever and diagnostic system. Those screwdrivers must get stolen a lot. I'm sure they do. And I think that's all the fun facts that I had for this. Cool. I think that that makes that our episode for today, then. Alright. I really am going to post the schedule tomorrow. Sure you will. Which, for people listening, is either yesterday or today. Or if you're listening to it after it was posted, then it was a while ago. But go look at our schedule. It's got some interesting things on there. we sort of been trying to do little themed chunks of things. So you might notice that we have a little... This is, uh, I think, part three of a weird, like... Humans ruin the planet. Well, I guess with Seven Eves, it's not humans ruining it, but... It's uh, Seven Eves, Horizon Zero Dawn, and Wally. So, yeah. Humans surviving. Sort of. Sort of. In various ways. Yeah. So we've got a couple more things like that coming up. We're starting a couple of series of books where we're going to do an episode per book. So, And we've got our schedule through to the end of April planned out. So you can go take a look at that. As I said at the top of the show, you can find our social media in the show notes. You can email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com if you have feedback, questions, or suggestions. You can also talk to us on social media with hashtag unramblings. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next week. The fact that her response to movement is to blast it is concerning to me. Yeah, it is, because if there's no plant life prior to this, then there shouldn't be any large animal life that would pose any sort of physical threat. Yet the only other entities that would move that might trip that sensor to be like, oh god, would be other robots that are also presumably doing a directive that's important. So I, I don't know, it's weird. Maybe that's what happened to all the other wolves. <laughs> they were all blasted by Eve probes. Uh, Systematically picked off over the past 700 plus years. <laughs>